This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. As we are moving through uh, this kind of corona season, uh, it, it would some would think, man, you know, things are slowed down and uh, I've had so much extra time. But if you're like me, you find yourself to be incredibly busy. There have been lots of things that still have come up. There are things that still need to get done. There are lots of tasks that need to be completed. If you're like me, you can feel overwhelmed with how many things you still have to do. I find myself getting stressed out because it it becomes so difficult for me to complete all the stuff that I have on my plate. And if you're like me, that leads to this never ending cycle of not getting things completed and being stressed out because none of the things you're doing seem to be finished or get finished as quickly as you want them to. Or maybe parts of them get finished, but other things don't. And even when they are finished, it's only a temporary relief. Even when you finish the things on your list, you get it, you finish it for that moment, but now there's another list uh, to be made. One of the things that you see or where you see this played out so well is in professional sports. What's the goal of winning? What do you wanna win in professional sports? It's not just a game, you want to win the final game. You want to win a championship. And what happens when you win a championship? is are all of the things that you were hoping for, have they all been alleviated? All the concerns that you had, are they all gone now and forever? No, it's temporary, why? It's time to win the next one. It's time to go after yet another championship. When you make a certain amount of money that you wanted to make, is every desire for money gone? No. Now it's time to make the next dollar. I think somebody asked uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men men in in American history and even in world history, uh, said, how much money is enough? And he's like, it's only enough when you get the next dollar, right? There's always something else. No matter what our tasks are, when they're done, we still have more uh, to accomplish. We never feel like we're fully finished. You can see where this becomes this never-ending cycle. You can see how you can get to a place where there's just this hamster wheel that you're living in. A maelstrom of uncompleted activities engenders a never-ending cycle of anxiety. You take on so many tasks and in the moment, you feel like a warrior, right? But deep deep down, you find yourself being a worrier. You find yourself just constantly like, I, you know, if you're, again, if you're like me, you're constantly aware of all the things that aren't finished. And so it almost becomes a part of your identity. Somebody that's just always busy. Somebody that just always has lists, which we all do. Somebody that just always has things that are just not completed. And it creates a very understandable area of anxiety. We need tasks to be finished. Psychologists have actually explained this need for us. Uh, There was a a Russian psychologist by the name of uh, Bluma Zagarnik, and they call this thing the Zagarnik effect. It's such an interesting interesting phenomenon. This research, his research showed uh, that the human mind hates unfinished tasks. Our our brains just aren't wired to handle tasks that are uh, incomplete. And so Zagarnik, he, he theorized that our minds experience this psychological tension 
There's this phenomenon that happens in our brain where this tension rises up in you. And it can be, here's the thing, the good thing about it is it becomes this persuasive impetus uh, to complete the task. So as long as you leave the task unfinished, your brain is in an uncomfortable place. As long as the task doesn't get done, there's this thing that can't be, uh, it can't be assuaged until the task is completed. This happens even in entertainment, right? Imagine watching a movie with this massive cliffhanger. Imagine watching Avengers Infinity War, for those who hopefully have seen it, great movie. Uh, imagine watching that and you get to the end and there's this massive cliffhanger. And your brain is like, there's a tension that I need to be resolved. And I've got to wait one to two years in order for that to be resolved. Where as long as that task gets unfinished, right? As long as it remains there, something happens with your brain. Whenever the tasks are not completely done, your brain does something. It remembers actually better when it happens. Thoughts of the task serve to remind your brain what it needs to do in order to get comfortable again. That's why experts have said that when students are studying and you have lots of uh, topics to study, you actually remember better by starting it and not completing it all the way, starting something else and then going back to it. Because there's a tension where your brain forces itself to remember more facts because it's not done yet. This, this effect is very real for us. And it's interesting because now you find yourself in that, like a student, you can recall the information more quickly. Uh, this tension of the incomplete study session means they have a higher likelihood of, of remembering them. As soon as you complete the task, the tension is alleviated. And in so doing, your brain lets the mind uh, release the thoughts of the task. It, your brain is able to release that consciousness. It's, it's, it's set, it's at peace again. You see, when things aren't finished, we tend to dwell on all the ways that they are not finished. If they are finished, but we don't know they're finished or we don't remember they're finished, we will remember in an anxious state of mind and in an anxious state of spirituality. Our text today includes one of the seven last statements of Jesus. The writers of the Gospels highlight different things that Jesus said during his final moments on this earth. Here we see in the English uh, three words that Jesus says before his life is taken. It is finished. What do we need to believe and what do we need to remember in order to have peace with God and to have peace of mind? It is finished. We're going to con continue through our series in John. John chapter 19, we're going to read verses 17 through 30 as we spend some time really looking at what is it that Jesus really completed? What did he actually finish? Why does that matter to us? And why does remembering that, how does remembering that impact our own anxiety, impact our own spirituality, impact the way we handle maybe even the, own ta the, the, the tasks we have that may not be finished? Let's read uh, together. John 19, verses 17 through 30. We're going we're gonna to walk through this, but we're going to spend more time on those last three verses and talk about what it means for things to truly be finished. Verse 17, this is right after everything's happened with a Barabbas being released. Jesus has just gone on trial. He's now getting ready to go be crucified. Verse 17, carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called a place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and 
two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that, he said, but, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you look at the life of Jesus and you look at uh, all of the things that he proclaimed, all of the things that he declared, all of the things that he demonstrated, you realize, and he actually reminds us, that everything he did was in, in, in uh, pursuit of a very specific purpose. It was in pursuit of completing a very specific task. And that task should matter to us. What it is that he's finishing has a direct impact on us, specifically what we think we have to finish on our own. Look at the first few verses, though, because Jesus isn't the only one that's finished here. Pilate shows that he was finished. You notice in, in, verse, in verses 17 through 22, you see uh, Pontius Pilate, he's, he's, he's very finished. His Friday has not been good. This is typically what gets preached on that Good Friday service because this was on that Friday when it happened. And here's, just think about Pilate, Pilate's day. Think about Pilate's Friday. He's got an angry mob outside his window early in the morning, demanding a crucifixion. Pilate gives him a chance to see a real criminal punished and an innocent man released. The people choose poorly. They choose Barabbas, as we talked about before. He gets set free. Pilate is ordering a good old-fashioned Roman flogging, hoping that would satisfy the bloodlust of these Jewish leaders. But that 40 lashes minus one just wasn't equal to their hatred. And then this man that they bring before Pilate, he doesn't talk much, just a little about kingdoms that weren't of this world and sometimes about the truth, but Pilate didn't quite get that. And he wasn't up for debating the finer points of philosophy, not with all this mess on his hands. So here's Pilate dealing with this, looking at this, hearing these charges of treason and the real possibility of a riot. Uh, he, he's thinking twice about this. His, as we talked about before, his reputation is on the line. His, his job is on the line. He likely can kiss his career goodbye if that happened. He likely uh, knows that if this news ever gets back to Rome, it's done for him. He will be finished. So what does he do? With a bowl of water, 
He washes his hands and says, I washed my hands of the matter. And he thought he had washed the innocent blood off his hands. And with a sign on the cross, Pilate, as the scriptures tell us, Pilate puts this sign on the cross, publicly proclaiming the reason for the crucifixion. In many ways, poking the Jewish leaders right in their eyes. This is uh, ultimately why they come and they protest to him. They go to him and they say, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews, that he said it. Don't say that he actually was it. Just say, hey, here's somebody who made this claim. And he really is wanting to stick it to them as well. And so I love what he says. He basically, in many ways, say what we now has become a phrase that we say, I said what I said. What I've written, I've written. Y'all got to deal with that. So Pilate's done. He's finished. And then a little, bit, a little bit later, it looks like Jesus was quite literally finished too. Here he is nailed to a cross. You look at verses 18 uh, as, you, as you go for, I'm sorry, uh, you go to 23, 24, 25. You see Jesus on the cross here. And it looks like he's done. He's nailed to a cross. His end is coming. And the Romans were going to make sure of that. But Jesus wasn't finished yet. He wasn't finished fulfilling the law with perfect love. And this very shocking act of love, he looked down and forgave the very soldiers whose fingerprints were on the hammer. In other Gospels, we see him saying some other last words as well, additional, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This heart of forgiveness, this incredible act of grace and mercy, while he's being crucified, this is the love that Jesus is showing. He's still not done yet. In this saving act of love, he looks over to one criminal and assured him that that very day he would be in paradise with Jesus. You see this final act of love. He looks down from the cross, looks at his mother. This is such an interesting and very touching scene here. Because you almost, and if we had time, we could dig into just why these women, these women are there, really some of the most faithful people in the entire story. You know who's not there? Anybody else other than John, right? You've got Mary, you've got Mary Magdalene, you've got John. These are some of the most faithful people that are there. The rest are gone, dispersed. They were finished. These folks were right there. You've got the mother of Jesus. You've got Mary Magdalene. And Jesus looks at his mom and he realizes, I want my mom to be okay. It's interesting because in a lot of ways, people will, will act as if even ministry uh, is supposed to be something that you kind of overlook your family in order to do. Jesus doesn't do that. He genuinely cares about his, his mom, he cares about uh, his, his family. He sees his mom and he looks down and he, he, he finally says, I wanna make sure that my mom is gonna be cared for. Looks down from the cross, makes his mother the object of his loving care and concern. It's easy to forget that Jesus actually had a real family and he did. But being Jesus's mother, imagine the, the heartache that she's having to deal with. Imagine, is this gonna be finished for her? I mean, 33 years earlier, Simeon had said this about Mary's 40-day-old uh, baby boy. This child is destined to cause the failing and rising of many in Israel, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That sword was sharpened by her own people's rejection of her son. That sword was driven into her heart as the nails were driven into her son's flesh. There's a, there's a quote here I have from an old Lutheran pastor, uh, and he paints this picture of Mary at the cross. He says, she sees Jesus lifted up, but cannot touch him. 
sees him nailed and cannot loose him, sees him dripping with blood but cannot remove it, sees his wounded body but cannot bind them up. She hears his cry, I thirst, and cannot give him a drink. As many torments there are in the body of Christ, so many wounds are there in the mother's heart. And Jesus knew it. He, he dealt with the sword in Mary's soul with his perfect love for her. Love that brought him from heaven to her very stomach. Love that caused him to obey her every word as a child. And love that looked down from the cross and took care of her future needs. When Jesus saw his mother there, the scripture says he saw her there. And look at, look at, look at what he says, just the, to go back through. He sees his mother. In verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Most scholars agree that this disciple is John. And it also, just by way of kind of a gee whiz fact, this is how you know that either Joseph was uh, likely dead by now, or some people wonder if he had been gone. We don't know. We just know he wasn't in the picture, right? And so uh, at this point, he's looking at his mom and he's going, okay, I'm going to make sure that you, your, your physical and your emotional well-being is going to be cared for on some level. So he wanted to make sure she was okay. And here he is, nails in his hands, the end in sight. He's showing perfect love for his earthly mother. And in so doing, perfectly fulfill the law of his heavenly father. It was only then and only in that way that he could provide the world with this as an innocent substitute. It was this only way that a perfect sacrifice, a holy savior, could show this kind of love. And he shows love to his mother and he shows love uh, to the world. But still, even at that, at that stage, he wasn't finished. He's finishing, but he wasn't finished. His love kept working on the cross by actively fulfilling all of the prophecies of scriptures. Most will say roughly 300, upwards of 300 prophecies about what the Messiah would do, how he would come, how he would die. All of those things were laid out and he is fulfilling every single one of them to the very jot, to the very tittle. His love kept working on the cross by actively fulfilling every one of these prophecies 100% of the time. And you see Christ as this true savior. The first fulfillment of scripture was done to Jesus by the soldiers, as we see, right? This was, this, this was a Friday. It was a, it was a work day. They had been assigned to this unpleasant execution squad. They took the opportunity to profit a little from it, right? It wasn't uncommon. People knew, hey, we're going to, uh, these bodies, we know that most of the people were uh, crucified uh, naked. And so let's not let this good clothing go to waste. So they did what they probably had always done. And they're casting lots. And they probably wanted even more because of how, the, because of the reputation that he had. Because, you know, my, my son has started to get into um, this show called Storage Wars. And at one point we watched an episode where uh, there was clothing that was worn by this really well-known music mogul, very large man. And they found in, a, in an old storage unit in California, this massive suit coat that had the man's name uh, stitched in. And it, was, and it ended up being worth, I think, seven, eight, nine grand, because, just because of who had worn the clothing before. These guys kind of get that. These guys realize if I can get some of this, this is from that rebel Jesus guy. A lot of people seem to really uh, know who he is. There's a lot of people who hate him. There's people who love him. We might make some money off of this. So they're doing what they probably had always done. And you see kind of where they are. You see, they're like, hey, let's, 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 
cast lots to try to get the garments. Let's get his clothes. Let's divide them. At first, they're like, let's divide them, one for each person. And the garment was seamless. And one person was like, well, let's, let's not tear it. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And the soldiers didn't know it, but as the scripture says, this happened that the scripture will be fulfilled. Psalm 22 had already uh, spoken about this. God spoke through David, prophesying about the Messiah who would come through the lineage of David and who would fulfill the very prophecy that's here. Spoke about Jesus's clothes a thousand years before the soldiers ever tossed the dice for him. Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies to show that he is indeed who he claimed that he was. And so God this is what he does, even with our own faults and our own sin. God used the soldier's greed and the soldier's cruelty to give us proof and assurance that Jesus was the Savior. If you don't realize this, even the worst things that we do, God still uses somehow for his glory. God is using everything for his glory. So you got the first fulfillment of scripture being done to Jesus here. The second was done by Jesus. Uh, and you see kind of what Jesus does, right? It says, after this, when Jesus knew that, every, that, uh, that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Now, this is another scripture that would be fulfilled. Now, this was a jar of wine uh, and vinegar combined. Some people call it wine vinegar. It's not just like normal. It's not like a nice, fancy red Merlot, if you will. It's actually kind of like a wine mixed with vinegar, and it really wasn't anything really good. And uh, they, they would use this sponge, soak it up, and just kind of give it to the person. It almost was a way to almost humiliate them even more. And so they lift it to Jesus' lips. Now, this, this, this torture of the crucifixion, it would cause a terrible thirst. You probably are incredibly uh, dehydrated at this point. You're hanging. The sun is beating down on you. And you are just, uh, and the heat and all of the things, you're going without water for so long. You probably have all kinds of anxiety. Breathing heavily, you are losing water like crazy. And so folks would get really thirsty and this was a part of the torture. They would give you something that would only make you thirstier. And so uh, this is uh, such an incredible proof here because Jesus ends up showing in many ways that he's willing to even endure this horrific uh, humiliation in order to fulfill scripture. We see that in Psalm 69, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Again, a thousand years before, this prophecy so specific. And Jesus is like, this is horrible. No one would ever voluntarily do this, but I'm going to do this to fulfill these prophecies, not just so I can say I fulfilled it, but so that people can remember and go everything that God said would happen has happened. What's the point? Jesus was not finished until he fulfilled every prophecy about him in the most minute detail from the toss of a Roman dice for a piece of his clothing down to the vinegar they offered him to drink. Jesus fulfilled scripture 100% so that we might have 0% doubt that our salvation has been accomplished. With that drink, Jesus fulfilled every letter of the law, every prophecy of the scriptures. So when he says he received that drink, full, a jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it up to his mouth. And when he, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. These words are so powerful. He said, it is finished, bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Now you might say, uh, this is Jesus's last words. You also might say, this is Jesus's last word. Because in the Greek, it's only just one word here. 
The word is tetelestai. This word is such an incredible, there's not really an English equivalent for it. Uh, this word is, is so powerful because uh, it's, it, it highlights really the very fact of your forgiveness. It, it actually, it's the same word that, that Greek shopkeepers would use and they would write on the bottom of bills almost like a receipt uh, once the bill had been fully paid. This idea that the bill has been fully paid. Imagine that picture. What needs to be fully paid? Our sin was a hopeless debt. We've seen the scriptures uh, uh, quoted multiple times. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no full payment for sin. There is nothing that will satisfy the debt that still remains when sin is present. Our sin, your sin, my sin, a hopeless debt. There wasn't anything we could give, anything we could say. There's nothing we could do to pay off a single sin. Remember when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler? He says, Rabbi, teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus is like, well, you know the law, you know the commandments, you know what it is you need to keep. If you keep those things, and the man says, yes, I, I keep them. I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't do any of these things. And he looked at him and he searched his heart and he said, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And the man just dropped his head. He realized, I'm not able to keep all of these. There's something off in me. I, I, even my best intentions, this man clearly had great intentions, but he wasn't able to do these things on his own. He was not able to give up all of the idols of his heart. In many ways, and God says, don't have any other God other than me. Sometimes money and security becomes a God. And that man likely had those things as his God. And him being able to give those things up, he couldn't do it on his own. There's nothing that we can do to fully pay the debt. When I grew up, growing up, not having a lot of money, we used to do something called layaway. And you pay a little bit at a time, and you pay a little bit at a time, and you pay a little bit at a time. And when you know that that bill is hanging over you, even though you're making payments, it never quite feels like you ever get to the end of it. it it's always something, especially if there are payments that you're making on any bill that accrues interest. Because the more that you pay on something, or the less you pay on something, the more the interest accrues. And so you're like, man, I feel like I'm never going to get to the end of this thing. Those who have college loans, you know what I'm talking about. It takes years and years and years before you ever get to the point where you're paying down the principal, right? Y'all, this is what we do with sin. We, we think I'm making little payments here at a time. I did a really nice thing here. That'll pay the, the debt down. I did a little thing here. That'll pay the debt down. But the nature of sin, the interest moves far too quickly for you to ever pay down the principal. You never get to a place where you're paying the principal. All you're doing is just paying a little bit of interest on it. And really what that means is you're just not dealing, maybe you're not dealing with a certain consequence here because you, maybe you did the right thing here. But there's this deeper thing that constantly is happening. There's this deeper level of sin that needs to be dealt with. And we can't deal with that. So all we do is pay the interest. The principal's still there. There's a debt that needs to be paid. There's no small balance of sin left, left for us to pay down when Jesus does the work. There's not a balance left over. There's no payment plan when it comes to our salvation. It's either finished or it's not. Either our debt of sin is paid in full or it's paid not at all. So when Jesus utters these words, it is finished. 
When he says that word, tetelestai, that is a word or words that ring throughout history as a sign that men and women's sin forever defeated and the power of death forever broken. However much uh, of the significance of this statement, uh, in many ways, in many ways, the significance of the statement gets lost. Because uh, when the Greek gets translated into English, uh, we lose a huge part of what this actually means. When he says this word, when he says this word to Telestai, it means to bring to a close, to complete, to fulfill. But there's something else that makes this very unique. Because when you think about the way, and we're going to get too much into like Greek tenses and Greek verbs, but what's interesting is uh, you've got verb tenses and, and they're very important when you're reading the scriptures because it communicates something different if you don't get the tenses right. And so sometimes things get lost in translation. So I'll just say this, Jesus is actually speaking using kind of two tenses here. He uses the perfect tense, which is rare in the New Testament. We don't really have an English equivalent for the perfect tense here. And, and, and you see this combination here in this perfect tense of, of, of the present tense and something called the aorist tense. Now, the, the aorist tense is something that happens at a specific time. So this is happening now, in this moment, right? The present tense is linear. It means something that continues on or into the future and it has ongoing results and implications. So when you combine these two tenses the way Jesus does here in this perfect tense in John 19.30, it's, it's this overwhelming significance, and it should be overwhelming significant to the believer. Because when Jesus says it is finished or it is completed, what he's actually saying is it is finished and will continue to be finished. It is finished and will continue to be finished. So it's not one of those things where it's like you won the championship, but next year you're back at ground zero. You made the money from this particular sale, but next week, you're back at zero. It doesn't work that way. Jesus says it is finished, and it will keep being finished. This is such an incredible truth, because it shows that Jesus finished the work of our salvation all by himself. No human work, no matter how holy it feels. No, no, no matter what it is that we have done or what we say or how, how we move, nothing else overtakes the fact that it is finished. And it is also uh, not just it was finished here. It will continue to be finished. And it's not because of anything we're doing or anything we've done. Think of it this way. You, I, we, we need to be delivered from the penalty of our sin. We need to be delivered from the consequences of our sin. And as long as we know, as long as you know that a penalty is coming, there's unfinished business. As long as you know that there's still a lot of payment that has not been made, or as long as you feel like that you're still living under the shame of your sin, that Zagarnik effect is still playing. Why do we remember our sins so distinctly at times? Because there's this overwhelming anxiety that it's not been paid for. Sometimes it's right. If we're not a believer, absolutely that thing plays in. So what do we do? We go out of our way to try to forget it. We got to go out of our way to anesthetize ourselves against having to mourn those things. We go out of our way to have unhealthy coping strategies. Why? Because that anxiety rises up. That's why we veg out. That's why we binge on things. I just need to lose myself here because I don't want to deal with the consequences here. 
That is an exhausting way to live, especially if we don't place our trust in Jesus. If we have placed our trust in Jesus, we still are prone to this because it's not that we don't believe it. We fail to cling to it. We forget it. And when we forget it, anxiety ensues. Either it's finished or it's not. We need to be delivered from the penalty of our sin. And as long as we know that a penalty is coming, the business is unfinished. The unfinished business creates this deep, abiding, mental, psychological, and spiritual anxiety. That Zagarnik effect starts to play with our minds. What do we dwell on more? The ways in which our sin has been paid for or the ways in which our sins condemn us? What do we dwell on more? Our spiritual anxiety results from our trust being placed in things outside of Jesus. Things that are insufficient to finish our greatest need, to finish our greatest challenge, to finish our greatest race. Look at these examples. Judas, where was he, where was he putting his trust? He put his trust in money instead of Jesus. That proved to be so anxiety-inducing that he took his own life. Peter trusted his own personal feelings of safety at, at one point. Pe trusted his own feeling of dedication to preserving self, which paved the way for his denial of Jesus due to his fear and anxiety. Pilate trusted worldly power. You know, some historians say that Pilate uh, may have committed suicide while he was in exile out of being overwhelmed by some of the things that he felt. Worldly power proved to be pointless. The high priests and the leaders here, these leaders of the Jewish community wanted to preserve the works and the traditions of their religion. They trusted humans more than they trusted the Son of God. They rejected the Messiah, the heart and soul of their religion. All these anxiety things start becoming uh, present when we're trusting in other things other than Jesus. Not even Mary could do anything to help her son at the foot of the cross, let alone help him save anybody else. And still, this very day, nothing, no one, no work could ever dare take the place of Jesus. We, we talk about this every new year, your resolutions to do better next time. How did they finish your salvation for you? How'd you do holding up on those? But Jesus did. Jesus' work did. Your sincere sorrow over your sin didn't finish your salvation. Jesus did. The strength of your faith didn't finish your salvation. Jesus did. We don't need to add any ifs, ands, or buts. Just be still and turn again in faith to Jesus. He won your forgiveness all by himself. In this statement, it is finished. We have this declaration of a salvation that is both momentary and eternal. We are saved at a point in time. It is finished and our debt is paid and we are ransomed from the kingdom of darkness. And then we, confident, uh, we confidently rest in the reality that it will continue to be finished because we are in a position of grace and we stand justified for all time before God. That one Greek word, tetelestai, spoken in this perfect tense by Jesus on the cross and it was finished at that moment and it is finished for all time. What does that mean for you and me? It means that all the work I may be doing to almost try to save myself, you need to ask yourself this question. If you're like me, I'm always busy, yes. Sometimes that's a badge of honor, I'm busy. 
It's a badge of honor to just tell you how many things I have, all the things that are weighing me down. We all talk this way. We all will give each other a pass when that's true. The question has to be, do I work? Am I accomplishing the task on my list because my identity is wrapped up in that to the point where I might even feel like my justification is wrapped up in that? To the point where I feel like that maybe even a part of how I show my salvation is pointed out in that. We might be functioning in a world in which we believe or, or act like that the job isn't finished. We act like that Jesus has not completed everything that's necessary for us to stand before the throne completely innocent. I remember uh, growing up as a kid, there would be, uh, um, there was a, a small little pizzeria in town called Hungry Howie's. And Hungry Howie's had this little sale that would uh, go on where kids, if they had a really good report card, could go and get uh, a slice of pizza. It's a really cool thing. People would get really excited about it. So if you happen to have good grades, people would come and go, hey, can I, can I use your report card? to go get a slice of pizza because my grades weren't really good. And, and, I, and I know I probably should have done better. And I know I live in the shame of the fact that I didn't do better, but I really need a slice of pizza. Can I use your report card? Can I go take it over to Hungry Howie's? Y'all, in many ways, we are that kid. We are the kid that needs the better report card because ours is horrible. We are the kid that desperately needs a slice of that pizza, but we don't have the grades commensurate with one who deserves it. And what Jesus does, one of my favorite verses, I love to quote it, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His great report card for our flunking report card. His righteousness for our sin. His kingdom, our punishment, he exchanges. The work is done. We don't have to work for our salvation. Now, everything that we do in following him, we don't do it as a debt that we owe. It's a seed that we sow into his good kingdom. It's a seed that we sow into what it means to follow God. A seed that we sow that really just says, I'm just displaying the truth of what has already occurred on my behalf. And so when we look at this and we see this, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is it finished? Do you believe this is finished? Do you believe that the work of Jesus was enough to finish the the most ultimate job the most ultimate task. We don't have to do it anymore. We don't have to fake it anymore. We don't have to act as if it's our job to finish it. It was finished, it is finished, both now and forever. So know that it is finished forever in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are prone. We are prone to try to help you, we are prone Uh, to give you some kind of aid as if you need us to finish this job. As if the job is not already finished. God, I realize that every area of sin in our own hearts, sin in our minds, sin in our actions, in some ways it's just a, a, it, it proves that we just don't always believe that it's fully finished. So we seek something else to deal with our anxieties. We seek something else to deal with our fears. We seek something else because we think that might be better for us. We struggle with believing that it is finished. God, I'm so thankful that it is finished despite what we may believe in the moment. 
And I'm so thankful that because the work is finished, we can go back to that work. We can go back to who you are and you accept us and you cling to us because you've never let us go. God, I'm so thankful that you finished the work in such a way that there's nothing we can do to pluck ourselves out. And yet you continue to impress upon our hearts the ways that we need to remember it, that we need to live in it, that we need to walk it out. So God, I pray that you would show us what that is today. I pray that you would uh, impress that on us in such a way that we can walk with our heads high, not because of anything we've done, but because of the work that you finished and continue to finish in Jesus' name, amen. Now let's receive this final blessing, this benediction as it's called. And I want you to listen. Listen, we always come out of Jude and I love this so much because this particular passage is one that shows all the ways that the finished work is truly finished. Listen to what the finished work of Jesus affords you. It begins with this blessing of God, this speaking well of God, and we're blessing God for all the ways that he blessed and continues to bless us. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.